Hello friends, it's Scott Fox, here today for another episode of the Click Millionaires Podcast. Today I'm going to talk to you about a bunch of the questions that were asked during a recent Masterminds meeting that I hosted. This was a group of entrepreneurs and uh, service providers like attorneys and accountants and those sort of folks, human resources professionals. They came together to help explore the working issues that real entrepreneurs have in their real lives building real startups. This isn't a uh, panel discussion or one of those meet and greet sort of things, but we actually sat down. There were about uh, 35 of us, I think, and uh, talked through questions that had been submitted to me in advance. So this podcast is a special edition of my normal show, and I'm actually just going to talk. So if you don't like the sound of my voice, I apologize. (laughs) You're welcome to tune out. And if you like this sort of thing, on the other hand, you might get a lot out of it. Today I'm going to be talking about discussion topics where we covered things like simplifying a marketing subject so it's easy for others to understand, what's the best way to bring a services business to scale, what are marketing strategies that can be implemented without spending any money, Um, And then there were a lot of questions this uh, session about best practices for splitting equity among founders and with service providers. So I'll talk a bit about that. And uh, also what you need to have ready before you go out looking for money in terms of whether it's actual product or lean product or results or customer contracts, business plans, that sort of thing. All of that focused on helping you raise money. So I'll talk through both the questions, of course, which came from the people in the in the group, as well as the answers that were provided by the group in general, and then I'll add a little commentary of my own. So it's kind of a three-for-one, and you'll get the best and the brightest from this Masterminds group, which met a few weeks ago. If that sounds interesting to you, stay tuned, and we'll be talking uh, together here. Uh, I guess I'll be talking, you'll be listening, and um, hopefully this is useful to you. All I ask in return is if this is interesting to you, please share it with your friends, make a little noise in social media, let people know that this podcast is out there, and hopefully it can reach some more people to help. I see that we've got uh, hundreds and often thousands of downloads of previous episodes, so I know people are listening, and I'd appreciate hearing from you. You can even email me directly, radio at scottfox.com, radio at scottfox.com. And uh, by the way, if you don't know who I am, I'm Scott Fox. I'm a long-term serial entrepreneur, angel investor, uh, mentor to many startup companies, and the author of three books about internet startups, which you can find on Amazon.com, or just head over to scottfox.com for information about me, or scottfoxbooks.com, and you can see all my books up there posted on Amazon.com for your listening or reading enjoyment. All right, so let's get to our first question. Uh, How to simplify a marketing subject so that it's easy for others to understand? So this came from a gentleman who's part of an engineering team, and their team is having difficulty making an impact with customers because their product is a high-tech device. Now, as usual, I'm not going to go into any specifics, really. Uh, These meetings are confidential, but we're going to talk about the principles that are involved. And I've seen this many times over the years. Engineers have a lot of brain power and are very excited about a new piece of technology. And they can't quite get other people to understand why they're so excited. (laughs) The technology is is interesting. It's potentially uh, high impact. Um, Of course, it's often expensive, which is the problem. So the engineers end up having to come sort of hat in hand to people who have money and asking them to uh, help, basically. The problem is nobody's going to help if they don't know what you're talking about. So what we're going to do is talk about ways that the engineering product they've come up with can be simplified. How do you express this complicated 
product, which is kind of an abstraction to folks who don't really care about the product necessarily and just want to make money. Of course, that's insulting to the creative side of any engineer, especially those who are purpose-driven. Uh, a lot of the devices and um, inventions that are active in uh, Southern California are actually medical devices, right? So these are literally life-saving possibilities. And people that dedicate their lives to that sort of thing get frustrated often when when investors don't get more excited because they are looking purely for an economic return, not necessarily a social good. So here I'm going to share some of the suggestions that the audience had, uh, or the rest of the masterminds group, and then add a few ideas of my own as well. The first thing is that you don't start with the technology. If you're trying to explain something that's non-engineer, that's engineering related to non-engineering people, I hate to say you have to dumb it down, <laughs> but that's kind of the idea. Uh, without insulting the investors or the marketing folks or the product people or whoever it is you're speaking to, you need to simplify it and put it in terms they understand. So just as if you wouldn't walk into a room full of Spanish or Japanese speakers and try to do your pitch in English, you would adapt your pitch to their language, right? And this is what you need to do when dealing with non-technical investors or any non-technical audience. How do you do that? Well, first of all, I wouldn't start with the technology. And this is a hard one for engineers to get over. Their lives are dedicated to the technology, right? But you need to turn the telescope around. The technology is actually the last thing you talk about. What you need to talk about instead is the problem that's being solved. Most pitches tend to come from a place of love and creation. The team has built this thing, they've worked really hard to add a bunch of features, and so what do they do? Well, they talk about how hard it was to make, the technology that underlies it, and the features that they added that they're sure are going to be exciting to the audience. That's a little backwards. What the audience wants to hear is, why do I care and how's it going to make me money? So why do I care? Well, the simplest way to get to that is, even if it doesn't help the audience directly, personally, is to express how it solves a problem. This device is smaller. It's cheaper. It's more energy efficient. It solves this kind of problem. It saves lives in these situations. What's the problem you're addressing? So take that technology and bring it out of the lab and into the real world. What problem is it solving? That's where I'd start. Second, uh, you could then maybe get into some features. If the features elucidate, uh, that's a fancy word for explain, <laughs> if the features shine a light on how it makes the problem solving more efficient, easier to use, easier to distribute, cheaper, all those sorts of things. The feature should play into the problem solving because the problem solving is what's going to sell this thing to the end customer. And that's what the investor wants to know. How is the, inv how is the end customer going to be interested enough to buy a whole bunch of these so that I, the investor, am going to get my money back and a whole lot more? Another step that would be helpful, suggested by the Masterminds group, was met a were metaphors. Can you come up with an idea, a suggestion, an analogy to something that the audience is already familiar with in the real world? For example, if it's a, a spring, well then maybe you talk about an accordion or an inchworm or a slinky, something that's familiar to them. Uh, this is obviously very specific to the device or the product or the engineering process, but if there's a metaphor that you can come up with so that your very complex and otherwise confusing investment opportunity suddenly sounds approachable and interesting like a butterfly or a cupcake, 
or uh, a car engine, something that people might be familiar with, then you can continue the metaphor um, on common ground. You can show them how it is like this thing they're familiar with, and then detail how it works to make things better for the end user. So that's the idea that I would suggest is to quickly communicate. You, you start with um, a simplification that focuses on what is the problem solving, then bring in the features, use a metaphor, and quickly communicate all that, and then finish with examples and case studies where this has hopefully already worked in the real world, or at least where it would work in theory if you had the money. All right, so that's some advice on uh, commercializing uh, intellectual property or inventions from an engineering point of view, and I hope that's helpful. Another piece of advice that came up during the same conversation that I think is worth passing along, especially if you're an engineer, and in fact this goes for anybody who's in a pitching situation, and that's simply this, speak up. <laughs> a lot of folks who are engineers, and this is true of many people who like to work on the internet, are introverts, and they're not in the habit of speaking loudly and clearly, or assertively and you know confidently, and promoting themselves and their products by speaking aggressively. That's important. In a pitch situation, the audience doesn't know you, so they take their cues from you. If you appear unconfident and shy and worried about what you're saying, well, why would they get excited about it? No matter how accurate you are, you're just the messenger. And if the messenger doesn't appear to have the message under control and believe in it, well, they're not going to believe in it either. So you need to speak up clearly and loudly. Pick up your eyes, make eye contact, and let them know that you are behind this, that you are exciting and excited about it, and they should be too. All right, that's question one. If you just tuned in, I'm Scott Fox, uh, doing an update on a recent Masterminds group that I hosted and hoping that these questions and answers and this little dialogue I'm sharing are helpful to you and your early stage startups. Please drop me a line at radio at scottfox.com or share this latest episode uh, with your friends on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or wherever you're hanging out these days. Our second question is about service-based businesses. Service-based businesses often have difficulty scaling because, well, they're usually based on the founder, right? But there are so many, only so many hours in the day. And if you get into that trading hours for dollars thing, it's hard to scale past 24 hours in a day. And that assumes you don't even sleep, which is not scalable in its own way. So how do you scale? What's the best way to bring a services-based business to scale? Well, here are some of the thoughts that were shared by the Masterminds group. The group suggested that you need to start by figuring out what your goals are. For example, if it's a lifestyle business and you don't want to work so many hours, this is more critical than if you're willing to go balls out and work your butt off uh, just to make money. That's a different lifestyle choice and it affects how your business is going to scale as a service provider. Then of course, what are your other goals? Is it about money or is it more about influence? Or is it about growing a large organization or helping a charity? All these things can help you decide how to scale the business because they speak to what kind of platform you want to build. So that's what I want to talk about. The group really suggested that as a service-based business provider, what you need to do is build a platform. So obviously this platform provides the services, but it also needs to incorporate you as the founder as a marketing agent. How are you going to spread the word about your services? 
how can you sell without selling? Ideally, a services-based business will grow on its own because your reputation precedes you. Word of mouth or referrals help you grow because other people have been pleased with your work and then the business comes in naturally. So the focus here was the answers that resulted were not so much about software or how to hire and the scaling sorts of tools that you might expect. The conversation really headed more towards talking about expert and influencer positioning. So if you talk, if you take scale literally in the first uh, the first phase of a founder-driven business, the question really meant how do you scale a services-based business when there's only me and I want more clients, not the sense that we often use in the venture community of how do you scale a business that already has, say, uh, 50 clients and you want to get to 500. That's a very different discussion and different <laughs> answer than we're going to do right here. But talking about a sole proprietor who wants to get bigger mostly by acquiring new clients, well the best way that the group came up with, and I think this is valid for this early stage conversation, is really to talk about positioning yourself as an influencer. How do you get seen as an expert among your constituency? There's a lot of answers to that, right? But that I guess is the short version of go out and figure out how to get your name out there. Uh, suggestions more specifically were of course around content creation YouTube videos Instagram posts Facebook uh, a group or a Facebook uh, sharing uh, podcast a blog of course email newsletters speaking at events uh, radio and podcast interview publicity all these sorts of things can lend themselves to positioning you as an expert which can then lend to itself to people seeing you as an expert which leads to them calling you for help on the topics of which you are an expert on. So um, there was also a bit of discussion about figuring out what your niche is versus going too wide because a lot of the problems that service-based businesses have in scaling both in the early stage when they're just trying to attract more customers and also later as they grow trying to figure out where to devote their resources those are problems of focus as much as anything else because in the early stages they maybe pitching themselves too broadly and that was the case in this conversation that we had the gentleman who asked this question was a sole proprietor and he couldn't really describe succinctly what he was offering and the group kind of pounced on that to suggest that he really needed to focus and have an elevator pitch and I of course I agree with that you know what do you do or what do you offer I do X Y and Z for this kind of person bam and you're done if you can't say that clearly it's gonna be hard for anyone to know that they should hire you of course the flip of that is that any entrepreneur doesn't want to turn away any business so they're always going to say well I do this and this and I do some of that and and when I the time is right and on Tuesdays I'm going to do some of this is any of that interesting to you because I need some money <laughs> and, but that's not going to work and it doesn't inspire confidence in the audience so the suggestion is to come up with a focused package of skills that is niche and specific enough that it speaks to your ideal target clients but isn't so broad that it confuses them or allows people's attention to sort of waver while you're talking and uh, distract them with uh, things that aren't directly related to getting you uh, hired as their client, as your client, I should say. Another thought before I move on is that the audience suggested that you might do a pie chart and really figure out where are you allocating your time versus where should you be allocating your time in terms of 
scaling the business towards uh, by investing more time in marketing or more time in content creation or more time in operations and service delivery, those sorts of things. Uh, it's good to really look at your time and make sure that you are, in fact, spending it appropriately uh, so that you're not beating yourself up, feeling like you're not getting results um, because you were misallocating your time. It's easy to think you're doing and uh, doing the right things and being productive, but if the results aren't paying off, a time analysis like that and a budgeting of your schedule can be a good way to realize that you need to reorient yourself and your efforts. Our next question was about marketing strategies that can be implemented without spending any money. And this was an interesting discussion. The gentleman in question has an app, and this can apply more broadly, but I'm just trying to give you some context. He has an app that's related to sales uh, and helping people find and buy products that they want on Amazon.com. But his question was broader than that, and he had some experience um, that he he's in a bootstrapped situation and he doesn't have any more money to spend and yet he can't get anybody to invest because he doesn't yet have any results to show them so let's talk first about investors he was very negative that anyone will invest without him having some results to show and, and I think that's probably true, right? If it's just a dream, it's going to be hard to get people to invest. But it does happen. If you have uh, an enthusiastic pitch, you have domain expertise, and you have some good connections, yeah, people will, will support you some money if you're ready to try something. But of course, it's not going to be a million dollars right off the bat. If you can adjust your expectations down to the, I don't know, depends on your friends and your neighborhood and what the project is. But, you know, if you could get away with five or $10,000, people might be into that. If you can show that there really is an opportunity here and that you really are the guy or the gal who's going to get out there and crush it. Those are reasonable things. And I would keep trying if I were him. I was, I talked to him after the meeting and said, you know, you shouldn't give up just because these two people shot you down. That means they're conservative investors. You need to find some more aggressive, earlier stage investors. It's really a question of how much you're asking for and what kind of upside you're offering them. If you're asking for a lot of money, offering little participation and not a great pitch, of course everybody's going to say no. But even with just an idea these days, there's lots of money out there. Now, um, how? let's get back to his, his bigger question, which is how to implement marketing strategies without spending any money. Well, for Amazon.com anyway, there are people who are power sellers. It would be good, this is advice from the group, to figure out who the power sellers are in your niche and try to figure out if you can get them on board or at least get them to give you some feedback. It could be really valuable. And if you can convert them into evangelists for you by involving them in your feedback loop and um, thanking them for their feedback, they might end up uh, promoting you as well. That's a good sort of relationship-based marketing strategy that shouldn't cost any money, although of course it does cost time. You could also look at your competitors. What are the competitors doing that seems to be working? Uh, that was another angle that came up and which of course makes sense in any business venture. How are the other guys doing this? And even if they're not in your industry directly, um, what, what other fields are like yours that you could adopt strategies from?
One thing that had worked for this uh, startup was that they had gone on Reddit and they'd posted uh, some questions there that kind of were leading questions. You know, what's the best strategy for this? Or how do you save money on Amazon.com? Or things like that that related to their app. And they got quite a bit of um, interaction and feedback and even some usage, some uptake, some in this case downloads um, of their app because of Reddit conversations. So if you don't know what Reddit is, you should probably Google that and it can be a good place to get some grassroots uh, enthusiasm building for you. Um, there were also some discussion about defensibility and patentability. Uh, was this thing defensible? Was it patentable? And at this early stage, it was really hard to see that it was. And in fact, without any money, uh, this may not apply in everybody's case, and this is certainly not legal advice, etc. But you might want to get out there rather than worrying about defending it and patenting it. Uh, it's, things move really fast these days, and especially in the world of apps, you're probably better off, the group thought, to get it out there and demonstrate some traction and try to go for the first mover advantage and build up an audience uh, that's big enough that other people don't even bother trying to compete. That seemed like a better uh, approach uh, according to the group. Some other ideas, of course, were uh, affiliate marketing. You know, can you share some of what you're making back to people to have them promote the usage? So, sort of a commission-based sales force. That seems like a good idea. Email marketing. You could, of course, do email marketing yourself if you have a list. Um, but even more than that, you can probably rent a database of emails of top Amazon customers or sellers and um, hit them with an offer, maybe back to the previous point, hit them with an offer that offers them a percentage of sales if they help you promote uh, your app and that generates some sales, maybe you can share that with them, kind of an affiliate offer for them. Then of course there's all the sharing techniques that we have in social media these days, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, Facebook, whatever uh, medium you like the best, uh, the idea is to go and find out where your audience, your target audience, your ideal audience, your first cut at the best audience for you, where do they hang out? And spend some time or some money uh, making friends there and getting people to share. And if you need to, incentivize those sharers, again, maybe with a percentage of sales. If you can cut people in on a revenue stream, they're likely, you know, more likely <laughs> to, to be interested than if you're just asking them for free favors. On the back end, if you do all this and it starts working, you have a bunch of transactions through Amazon.com and you have a lot of data. And a thought was that if there's any results at all and you start to generate some data, that might be a way to raise some money. Maybe you could sell that data or offer it um, as a way to um, uh, promote to do advertising to those customers on behalf of other people. So that's another little business model that could get going at least once you have some initial traction. There was also a lot of enthusiasm for uh, Google Alerts and uh, Mention, which is a, a press clipping service so that you could track reporters and press who are uh, tracking the types of topics that your product, or in this case the Amazon app, is about, and then approaching them for coverage to get some free publicity. Mommy bloggers were another thought. Mommies love to save money, and since this was a saving and shopping app, it sounded like a good fit for mommy bloggers, so that also was a a strategy I would recommend approaching those folks with an offer that gets them excited about it so that they will blog about it and share it with their audiences could be a good way to build up some steam and some viral adoption. Even Craigslist was suggested as a way because you have a lot of people searching there for bargains. If you have a bargain uh, aiding app then perhaps Craigslist would be a place you might want to spend some time.
So there, there's a whole laundry list of things that you might be wanting to do or check out if you are trying to do some marketing without any money. If you're a bootstrapper, all of those things are worth uh, exploring, and um, I hope that's helpful to you. Well, I'm mentioning uh, being helpful. These are the kind of things that we talk about in my masterminds groups, which obviously you need to be here in Southern California if you, if you do that. Although I am thinking about doing, taking the show on the road. So if you're in another city somewhere and you'd like me to come and run a couple of these in your town, um, send me an email, radio at scottfox.com. But more importantly, if you're a early stage entrepreneur and you'd like this kind of help one-on-one uh, from me personally, in you can also participate in Masterminds Forum, mastermindsforum.com. You can go check that out, and that's a 24-7 resource. I'm there pretty much every day, and we also have other entrepreneurs from all over the world who are sharing information on topics just like this, and we'd be happy to help you too. The next topic is about equity splits. We had uh, This time we had three different questions from the audience about, um, well, let me read them to you. Uh, one gentleman asked, what are best practices for determining initial equity splits among founding team, future hire, investors, etc.? He wanted to know how to manage his equity so he didn't have regrets later. Great question. Uh, a woman asked, what advice do you have for a startup which is asking for sweat equity but doesn't have the means to pay potential partners yet? How should interest in the company be allocated? And how should she give shares of the company to new partners? Another great set of questions. And that led to our third question, which is the one um, was the, the guy that actually stood up and asked the question. So we focused on this one was, how do you use equity to pay a service provider partner? So all of these revolve around different ways to use your equity as an early stage company instead of giving people cash. And that comes up all the time. It's a totally legit question. And if it's on your mind, well, here's what our group had to say about that. One big suggestion was that you deal with this as early as possible. Okay, so that sounds obvious, but the longer you wait, the harder it gets. If you're going to be sharing out equity among people, everybody needs to be clear as soon as you can what they're getting, how much they have to do to earn it, and what happens if they stop earning it. All of those factors are things that are easily avoided and they're uncomfortable to talk about uh, but they need to be satisfied early on because if you don't you're going to run into lots of problems legally later as well as tax wise and you're not going to be able to raise any money if that's your goal if you're going to try to raise money and you have a mixed up unclear capital structure nobody's going to come near you so you've got to get these things together even though it feels like it wouldn't be much fun to talk about <laughs> you got to do it anyway so how do you um, how do you do this? Well, the suggestion was that uh, the typical way that this happens um, is as early as possible. Like I said, the tax consequences are much less the earlier you do this. And this way, as the founder or one of the founders, you can build more protections in for yourself as well. As I said also, investors will appreciate the simplicity of you having settled these things sooner than later. Because, as one guy put it, the more complicated it is, the less likely investors are going to want to invest because you're going to give them brain damage <laughs> by trying to figure out who's involved, how much they own, uh, what their expectations are, and how likely this is going to be a problem. It's just it's way more complicated than anybody wants to deal with. So, um, so here's some specifics, all that strategy. First of all, you need a clear definition of who gets what. That's all there is to it. If you talk about 100% of the company, who gets how many percent? And then how many percent do they get 
over time. It's rare that unless a person is actually a founder that they get a chunk of stock right away. You want to give it to them over a period of time during which they vest. And a schedule for their vesting is very typical. Um, for example, a, a four-year vest with a one-year cliff. And that might mean that if they're going to work for you, that they get, say, I don't know, 20% of the company. But it takes them four years to earn all that, and they don't earn any until they've worked 365 days. So they've they're in early and they get a big chunk 20% but only if they've continued to deliver for four years now if they leave on day 366 that means after one year then they'd get a quarter of their 20% so they might get 5% but now they've left okay but they've got 5% because they worked for you a full year at the early stage that sounds legit but they lose the rest or if they leave say after two years then they get 10% which is half of the 20% you offered that's what vesting does Investing is critical. Um, it's the critical second step. Once you decide what the allocation of shares is, then you figure out who gets how much when. And that is the next point, deliverables. What do they have to do to vest? They don't have to just keep breathing, right? They have to keep contributing. So if they punk out and only do half of what they promised, or they um, maybe they exceed expectations, you can give more, right? Um, a series of milestones or key deliverables is really helpful for managing vesting so that it isn't just a time-based thing. If people just show up and punch the clock for four years, you know, that guy's probably not worth 20% uh, of your company. But if he has helped this huge uh, technology implementation or he's led all the marketing or brought in the customers or did all the hiring and staffing or the facilities management or you know whatever it is that is valuable to your company uh, consistently over time those deliverables it's ideal if they're noted at the beginning so that you can then share out the uh, equity on a vesting basis that is uh, equitable and fair to both them and you the principle suggested is that money, in this case shares, follows work. Money follows work. Conversely, if the person stops working, the money, in this case the shares, if they stop working, the money leaves, right? So you shouldn't just be giving chunks of shares to people uh, unless you're sure that they're really going to stick around and you can count on them till the end to actually do everything they promised. And even then, you need a lawyer involved because, well, what if they get hit by a car, God forbid, or they uh, suddenly get married or divorced or have a couple kids or decide to move cross-country, right? All these things are potentially good things that normally happen in life, but you have to account for those in the way that your company is structured early on. Why? Well, it's uncomfortable for you, but investors are going to ask. You're not going to be able to grow the company with any outside money unless you have these issues settled up front. Now, the question you're asking at this point is, well, uh, what percentages are appropriate? That's Scott, you've been talking now for 10 minutes about this, but what percentage should I give this guy or this girl for this kind of service? Well, that's up to you, of course. It depends. The worst answer ever, right? But there are guidelines. You can easily research this stuff. I'm not going to go into too many specifics, but if you do, Google is your friend here. Go out there and say typical, just search, typical equity percentages for startup founders and partners, and you'll get all kinds of articles, and you can figure out what's typical in the kind of market that you're working in. There's also a great resource called Slicing the Pie. Slicing the Pie is a book, and it's also a website and a Facebook group, and it gives you a methodology that helps provide guidelines that will help you share equity fairly in an early stage organization. SlicingThePie.com. You can go check that out, and I recommend you do. All right, so we've got, uh, well, we're down to one more question. Okay, so 
Um, we're about a half an hour in, and then we're going to wrap this up after this next question. Although this is a doozy, so if you've listened this far, I appreciate it. Please tell your friends. And next, we're going to talk about financing. What do I have to have ready before I go out and ask for money? More specifically, we had a participant in the Masterminds group, and he asked this. Before running for financing, what boxes should I have checked to make sure that I'm making the most of my time early on and so that I'm prepared, if needed, to discuss financing? Okay, great question. He wants to be prepared. Smart guy, uh, hoping that uh, the money people show up and he generates some heat and he doesn't want to be caught off guard when they do. And this is a great idea. Um, You want to be ready. But let's start from first principles, okay? First of all, you don't need outside money. In fact, I would avoid it. Don't presume you need to raise money, even though that's what the media is full of, right? That's the standard operating procedure these days, is somebody starts a company, then they raise money. And it's gotten to the point where entrepreneurs seem to think that raising money is a requirement, or that it's even a goal somehow. Hey, I'm starting a company. I'm raising my first round. You know, we closed our first round. Great, we closed our second round. Okay, that's all well and good, but have you made any money? What do your metrics look like? Are, are people actually buying this thing, or do they want to buy it? That's what I want to know. How many people are signed up? The, whether you've raised money or not is, admittedly, it's a validation because other people are believing in you, and it's a great confidence builder, both for you and for your team, of course. But if you don't need to raise money, don't. I'd much rather have you be a 100% owner and very profitable without outside money. And yeah, okay, maybe you don't get to go ring the bell on the New York Stock Exchange when you go public, but you have control and you have the money going into your pocket instead of sharing it with all, all these other people involved. And every time you raise money, you are getting married. You're adding extra spouses who are going to want to watch the checkbook with you and uh, have opinions on management and opinions on marketing and product development and everything. And uh, that can really be a pain. So if you don't have to raise money, I would avoid it. Okay, but enough said about that. Let's go back to raising money because that's what Joe's question was about. So how do you raise money? What do you have need to have ready? Well, it depends on the business. There are different metrics for apps versus a, a big ticket sales versus an ad-based type uh, service, right? So what you want to have ready is as much as possible to demonstrate to somebody that you're for real, that this is happening, that it has some momentum, and that adding money to it would only make things happen bigger and badder and faster for you. So that's the sort of general idea. The specifics are hard. So what do you do? Well, you look at your type of business. What is your type of business? And then you go find some comps, comparables. Find a couple businesses that are like yours. Of course, they're not exactly like yours, but but is there anybody that's gone public like you lately? Even if they're much bigger, at least they have the same kind of rough business model. They're advertising supported, or they work on app downloads, or they sell this kind of widget with partners in China, or that are 3D printed, or or whatever it is. Is there somebody that you can look at who's already out in the public markets? Why do I ask that? Well, because if they're public, they have to file all kinds of stuff with the SEC the Securities and Exchange Commission. They file all kinds of reports that could be very interesting to you, and they will disclose things that can be of value to you in demonstrating your own comparables, like uh, customer acquisition rates or lifetime value of a customer or typical ad rates, things like that. Um, 
that can you can put into your own model and say, well, look, these guys did it and they got this. So we think if we did it like them, then we'd get this. That sort of comparable is where you start to make an argument. If they're a big enough public company, in fact, there will be analysts even covering them so that you'll get third-party opinions to double-check and cross-check and verify what the company claims in its own public filings. And then those analysts will say, you know, we, we agree with that that uh, in this case, but if demand over here drops, then we'd cut that back by 6%. Like those kind of metaphors and analyses can be very useful to you if you're speaking to an investor. Because if they question you, then you'll know how people punch holes in those arguments and you'll be ready. <laughs> so um, I guess the other part to be ready about is, oh, and, oh, and sorry, and if they're not public, well, then you can look for private companies. There are plenty of companies on, uh, you can look at places like uh, crunchbase.com or uh, Qualify or AngelList. There are lots of companies out there that have raised, even Kickstarter. There are places you can look to get ideas about how much early stage companies have raised and how they're doing and uh, again Google can be your friend find a couple people that sound like they're like you like maybe 10 of them and then Googleize them if that's a new word um, and figure out you know put in their company name and financing or investors and see what comes up see who invested in them you could probably even go back to if it's a venture capital firm you can probably go to that venture firm's website and see what they say about that company and you know what they might disclose more than the company company did and give you a different idea about why they invested. If there are public venture capital rounds that have been done that have been publicly announced, there's often a press release and you can read why did that venture firm think that it was interesting enough to invest in that company and how much did they give them. That can be very valuable information even for non-private, com non-public companies. Okay, so then outside of um, comparables, what else do you do? Well, you got to get ready. Investor, investors may believe in you, and you need to find those that do, or they won't invest. But it's not just about personality. You have to offer them a return on investment. I ran into a guy a couple weeks ago. I was on a, a panel at a local university about successful entrepreneurship, and he had all these ideas and just talked and talked and talked. And as it was asking us on the panel for help, and I finally I raised my hand and I said, "You've talked for almost ten minutes." And you haven't said anything about why an investor would make any money. And he was so caught up in his own dream, which was a good dream, by the way. It was a healthcare-related um, social services thing that would help a lot of people in a good way. I mean, it was a good idea, but if you want people to invest, you have to treat them like investors, which means you have to talk about how much money they're going to make. All the other stuff is great, but if you can't present an example or a, a valid case that their money is going to be returned to them probably tenfold and ideally even a hundredfold, then you shouldn't be out there trying to raise money. So um, those are the kind of things investors really need to hear. What are the other things they need to hear? Well, they're going to be thinking when you're pitching, do I like you? Do I want to be in business with you, talking to you multiple times a week for probably the next five or maybe even ten years? That's This is a relationship business. This may be only your first company or maybe it's your fourth company. But for you, this is like a you're going to get it going and who knows where it goes in a year or two. Investors look at this as a long-term play. They have a much longer time horizon and you're only going to be one of dozens, maybe hundreds of companies that they've invested in. But that means it's a long-term relationship. So do I like you? Do I trust you? Do I believe that you can make this happen? And making it happen doesn't just mean having good ideas. It means 
Do you have the chops to build a team? Do you have the chops to manage the books appropriately? Do you have the chops to market this thing and convince customers? So on and so forth. And of course, you don't have to do all those things personally, but you've got to be the guy or part of the team or the gal who's going to build that team. So they have to trust you and like you for real. As VCs get involved, venture capitalists, you also want to think about the rules and operational principles that they're relying on. If you're pitching them, uh, and they're a medical device investor and you've got an ad-based app, well, that was a waste of both your time, right? So what are they looking for? How does this company fit in with the rest of their portfolio and their expertise? Are there ways they can help you? Are there things you can ask for in addition to money or instead of money even, right? If, if they've got a big investment in a company that could be a great strategic partner for you, then maybe you don't even need money. You just need a customer. Well, they might be interested in that conversation as well. You also want to have your pitch deck ready. Now, that can be more important um, in a later stage. If the early stage, at least here where Joe was talking, he's so early that he's just trying to get some traction, get things going. Um, so I would focus really on uh, demonstrating some metrics. You don't really need a detailed business plan until somebody asks for it. But it is good to have a few slides that kind of say, here's the problem we're solving. This is our target customers. This is the initial traction we've gotten. You know, product market fit sort of stuff. This is why it works, and this is why we think we're going to make money. Uh, and here's our latest proof of that in terms of user engagement or sales or whatever metrics are important to you. Um, performance is better and more important than a 40-page business plan, especially if you're spending a lot of time generating hypothetical financials that are based on compounded assumptions about how you're going to take over the world. That's not of use to anybody. Much better spent, much better use of your time is to actually make some shit happen. <laughs> okay. So when you get to that point, a pitch deck can be important. It can really help you clarify and condense your message. And as a specific suggestion for that, I would just go out on the internet and Google pitch deck examples. There are plenty of examples out there, good ones that you can download, and try to cram your idea, your world-dominating, life-changing, globe-spanning big idea into a pitch deck of six or ten pages. Why? Because the pitch deck is more important than the business plan. You want to get people interested. Then if they ask for more, you can work on the business plan. You don't want to spend all your time on a business plan uh, and drop a 30-page document on somebody's desk when you haven't even sold them yet, right? you got to get them excited, and a pitch deck is about doing that. So um, that's about all I had. I guess the other last thought there is that you, for many of these questions, I recommend having an attorney involved. Uh, and this should not be your cousin who's an accident, a personal injury <laughs> attorney, and it shouldn't be your uncle who's a divorce attorney. There are specialists in these realms, right? And I don't even mean a guy who's done a few incorporations and is a general business attorney. If you're really going to start a serious startup and raise money from third parties, you need somebody who does this for a living. People who do the deal flow that keeps them on top of the latest deal structures and the ins and outs of protecting your stake and your valuation, helping you divide up the equity like we talked about in other uh, questions earlier, and really knows what they're doing. Ideally, that person would be uh, connected with a larger firm, and they, that means that they would also know a lot of the investors in your community. So you can contact me if you'd like a recommendation. I'm radio at scottfox.com. Uh, I certainly have plenty of people in Southern California I could help you with. Often this is better to have someone local, but 
that isn't necessarily needed. And if you're, especially if you're thinking about moving to California anyway, then uh, maybe the guys I know can help you. <laughs> so if that's helpful, that's another reason to shoot me an email. So that's all I've got for today. This is Scott Fox, and you've been listening to the Masterminds Wrap-Up Show from Click Millionaires. I'm Scott Fox. I'm the author of Click Millionaires, Work Less, Live More with an Internet Lifestyle Business You Love. I'm a long-term serial entrepreneur, and I'd be happy to work with you more. If you're in Southern California, come to one of my Masterminds groups. You can see that at uh, mastermindsoc.com and learn more about me and my services at scottfox.com. That includes private coaching calls if you'd like to speak directly or most importantly and more affordably you can join the Masterminds Forum mastermindsforum.com mastermindsforum.com has been running since 2009 and we have members from all over the world who pay a few bucks a month to join us and work directly with me and other entrepreneurs from all over the world to ask and answer and solve and accelerate their businesses through obstacles and questions just like those that I've been discussing here. So I hope that's helpful to you. If it was, would you please tell a friend, share it on social media, um, send me an email with a nice comment, say something, leave a review on iTunes. Any of that would be really helpful. And if you do, well, I'll keep serving up the information for you free of charge. Thanks very much for your help and your time. All my best for your success. Until next time, I'm Scott Fox.